So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. We're, we're towards the end of Ephesians. It's Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to go ahead and read that for us, and then we'll launch into uh, a conversation around it. So it says, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And so I, I, uh, I'll tell you that I have been evangelizing people about a TV show this week. It, is, it has been fairly nonstop in my life. I've been turned into an evangelist for a TV show. And uh, if you've been around me, then you're like, I, I thought he wouldn't do it. I thought he wouldn't bring that into this conversation, but you're wrong. I, uh, I've managed to squeeze this into almost any conversation I've had this week, and so my evangelism will not stop short now that uh, I have a microphone. And so uh, I, I've, I've made, I, literally, with people who, uh, the, t- the TV show, just heads up, is about Jesus. And, and so just in case you're beginning to like play out a really cheesy, low production, not good TV show, you're wrong, okay? It's called The Chosen. If you hear nothing else, go download that and watch it, and your heart will be blessed. Um, and... Uh, and so it's, it's about Jesus, but I, I've, I've managed to tell anybody about this. My, my, my brother who is very, very far from Jesus, he's, he's, got, he's got this thing sent to him. Like my, my in-laws, my like neighbor, anybody who likes conversation at a drive-thru, it's like I'll find a way, all right? And um, I, I just, it's been really captivating for me this week. And so the reason why that actually even came into my week, the way the reason why this, this TV show and really uh, this just glimpse of the glory and goodness of Jesus it, through that TV show, it, the, the way that happened was a friend of mine sat at my dinner table on Monday night. I had no idea about this before Monday night. But on Monday night, this guy sat at my table and he leveraged all of his relational capital. And we had a lot of relational capital. He's been my friend for a long time. He came to eat dinner with my family and meet my new daughter, and uh, he leveraged all of his relational capital to get me to check out this show. And uh, again, it's called The Chosen, and uh, it's a fairly interesting look at just the narratives of the gospel, especially around when Jesus is calling his disciples. And, uh, and I thought it was amazing, if you can't tell. All right? And um, what's interesting or really frustrating as you're watching this show unfold is, is the way that the Pharisees operated. It, 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 just with the color on it and the texture to it, it's like, man, how frustrating are these religious leaders of the day? And when you juxtapose them with Jesus, it becomes very, very clear how they were missing the heart of God, at least on the TV show, right? And uh, what they were doing, you could tell when they're, you could see just the way that they operate, and this is the way when you read the Bible and not just watch a TV show, but when you see in the scriptures what's happening, what Jesus exposes is that, they, that they're reading the scriptures to justify themselves or condemn other people. So the way that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, day, just the way that they operated, what they were doing is they were reading God's law and they were looking for ways that they could justify themselves, make themselves right before God in their own doing or condemn other people. So those were, that's the way that they were interacting with these uh, scriptures, the Old Testament. And, um, and the tragedy 
in all of it was that they were missing the author of the scriptures. He was standing right in front of them, the one that all of these scriptures were about. They were missing Jesus, and he was standing right in front of them. And I don't think this ability to miss Jesus or even to read the scriptures, the New Testament, to justify ourselves, to prove our goodness before God, I don't think that's reserved for Pharisees or religious leaders of Jesus' day. We, I think, can read, uh, read the Bible, we can read God's word to find ways to prove our own goodness. We open it up and, and we're just looking for ways to, to find out, make sure that I'm, I'm checking the right boxes, that I'm doing well enough Or we don't read them because we're afraid of finding out that we are lacking. There, there's a, a, maybe this, this spirit-led impulse in you to open up God's word and you'll find any reason. I mean, it's like, I need to get my oil changed. Or, you know what, I just, our fridge needs to get cleaned out. And anything, all of a sudden it becomes really urgent. Anything but being in that place. I think a lot of times it's because we're afraid of what we'll find out about ourselves, how lacking, how much we really lack. And the, the sad thing in that is that we miss Jesus. When we're reading the scriptures, we're reading the New Testament, the story of Jesus, we miss Jesus in it because we're looking at ourselves. Or we miss Jesus because we don't even open it up. And the reality is, is you could open up any part of the, if you have a Bible in your hand, you could turn to any page, maybe not the like, well, even the table of contents, I guess, but like anywhere in that book, that this collection of writings, you could turn anywhere in there and find Jesus. That's what Jesus says about the scriptures. When he walks, after his resurrection, he walks down a road called the Emmaus Road uh, with a couple of uh, disciples, and they, they kind of are like masked to his uh, identities, <coughs> identity somehow. <coughs> and um, he walks on this road, and, he, and, and he, he goes, and he just walks them through the Old Testament and points out how he is the point of all of the Old Testament. All of this was about me. To the Pharisees even, he kind of like openly flags them down and says like, you're reading Moses and Moses is talking about me. So you could go anywhere in the Bible and find Jesus. You, 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 you should not be able to miss him, but we can. Uh, Ephesians, this letter that we've been studying, um, is, a, is especially about Jesus. The, the, the predominant refrain, the chorus, so to speak, of Ephesians is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Paul, like, he can't find enough ways to tell you that all of who you are, all the blessings of God, all of your identity, all of those things are wrapped up by your union with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, he says the plan, God's plan for all of time. You want to know the big story from like there was no universe and then we're at a wedding feast with Jesus and, and it's just the forever long party. That story is about Jesus. The plan for all the fullness of time is to unite everything in Jesus. And, uh, and we find that he's worth searching for, but the amazing thing is that he came searching for us. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news of this whole thing. And in, in Ephesians 4 through 6, we see what it looks like to walk with Jesus as we worship God and all of the different relationships that we have or all the contexts in which we operate, all of those places. That's a place where we're walking with Jesus into those places. And uh, when we are his disciples, it's kind of what one of the things that just beautifully stood out to me in this, you know, chosen depiction of Jesus. 
He defines all of our other relationships. He becomes our preeminent relationship. And, uh, and that includes our relationships with our parents or parents, your relationships with your kids. He is, he is the predominant relationship that defines what those relationships look like, defines how we operate inside of them, defines what worshiping God looks like as we engage with our parents or we engage with our kids. And uh, honestly, if, if, you, if you got nothing else from today, if somehow you could just get a glimpse of Jesus, I am confident that it would be enough for you. I, am, I have been captivated with him this week, maybe in a, just a new way, a sweet way that God allowed me to just get a, get a glimpse of him. I just want to like testify again that he's all that we need. He's all you could ever hope for. His response to something is always the one that you wish you could figure out. How could I respond like that? Or his ability to engage with hurt and brokenness, his ability to rally the worst of the worst and the, and the, and the best of the best all into one space. I, just want, uh, I want Jesus for you, okay? Um, so in, 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 in Ephesians 6, which again is about Jesus, uh, Paul is continuing his thought, li- thought on this spirit-filled life. And I can say that it's about Jesus because he's one member of the Trinity, but he is this member of the Trinity in which we are now connected, united with God. And the Holy Spirit's shameless about that. The Holy Spirit is not trying to say, hey, you know what, Jesus gets a lot of cred, but maybe think about me a little bit. The Holy Spirit's trying to use his, he's, he is working out his influence in your life to direct your gaze to Jesus. And that's the spirit-filled life, his influence working in you, you living under the influence. And so as Paul is talking about that life under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he, uh, he, he talks about marriage. That's what we talked about last week. So if you missed that, um, you should try to get your spouse to listen to that. Just kidding. You should listen to it for the sake of loving your spouse. Uh, not because I said it. It's like you're going to have to pick out a lot of bones from that, so good luck, but you should listen to it. Maybe God would use that in your marriage. And ultimately we saw that, God, that the, the marriage is, is a gospel-fueled act of worship. It's a gospel-fueled act of worship. And, and then he comes to parenting. So Ephesians 6, now he comes to this point of parenting. And, and you get this, because of where it sits, this is a... <clears throat> a continued thought on a spirit-filled life, you find that parenting is spiritually significant. It's not, it's not just about parenting, but, but see what I'm saying. Parenting is spiritually significant. And now parents, they carry different types of weight in your home. However you break apart the responsibilities, um, parents are carrying different kinds of weight, and uh, both both fathers and mothers have challenges that they're facing, but because I'm watching my wife be a mom to a toddler and a newborn in this season, I can just, I get a front row seat to the all-encompassing nature of being a mom. Just how great of a calling, weighty of a calling that is. And also how probably frequent the temptation is to believe that in the midst of changing spit-up soaked clothes again, or answering why again, or um, waking up in the middle of the night again, or whatever it is that's so mundane, it's tempting to think that that's not spiritually significant. That maybe if you were like writing blogs, or speaking at some conference, or doing something that our religious complex has deemed worthy of spiritual activity, that that would be spiritually significant. And that's not what the scriptures are telling us. You're saying 
those very mundane little investments into these little lives, those are very spiritually significant, moms and dads. And so maybe that might might be kind of scary to you. Maybe you're like, I kind of wish, I kind of wish it wasn't spiritually significant. (laughs) I wish this wasn't having some impact because if there's one thing that I don't want anybody to see, if there's one place that my failure seems to be uh, constant and enormous, it's in my parenting. Maybe that's how you feel. It feels like the epicenter of all your failures are happening in that relationship. And so you're like, I wish it wasn't spiritually significant. But the reality is, is that... um, God says it is, it, that it matters. And um, whether we want to hide it or whether we want to boast in it, it, is, it, is, it matters. And what God's word is going to teach us today is that these parent-child relationships, they matter to God. Our worship can't be separated from them. And ultimately what I want you to see is that in Christ, in Jesus, our families become the front lines of evangelism. Your family life, the family relationships you have, those are the front lines of evangelism for you. Okay? So let's get into it in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Uh, we're going to read this part. It talks to children. And then the second part, it talks to dads and parents. So uh, we'll, we'll deal with that in a second. So Ephesians 6, through 3, <clears throat> 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <clears throat> Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So he's addressing parents. He just got done saying husbands and wives, and now he shifts gears and he says children. And so who are children? This is kind of like an interesting question to try to know who, who is he speaking to. And so he's not speaking to babies, uh, kids who can't receive the instruction, right? So you, there's like kind of a baseline. You'd have to be able to hear somebody reading the letter to the Ephesians for you to be addressed as children, but they are kids who have enough uh, awareness in that they are in some way able to either obey or disobey their parents. And so uh, what you see is that up to a point, uh, honoring your parents involves obeying your parents. Do you see that? So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And he follows that up, kind of continuing that thought or expounding on that honor your father and mother, which he's there just quoting the Old Testament, specifically like the Ten Commandments in another spot in Deuteronomy. You could, he could be quoting from either one. Okay, so he's following that up and saying, honoring your father and mother. And so what you see is that honoring and obeying for kids is, is right in the same space. So kids, uh, we're, we're, we're going to have a conversation on that in just a second. But you got to see for, for everybody else in here who is not underneath the direct authority of your parents, There's a point at which honoring your parents means coming underneath God's authority in the home that you are establishing. So honoring your parents no longer looks like them giving you day-to-day directives on how to live your life. That's just not, I'm going to see in a second, I don't think that's healthy. Um, But when we leave the day-to-day oversight of our parents, we can still honor them even if they aren't charged in directing us. Even if that's not their responsibility, you can still honor your parents. God wants kids to honor their parents because they're pointing, parents are supposed to be pointing them to God. That's what's happening. And so for kids in here, a lot, a lot of the kids are in Big Kids City, but if you're in here providentially, just, uh, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at you on this. This is a place in which uh, God's word is talking to you. And so I just want to be faithful and talk to you about this. And, uh, and what you need to hear, kids, is that 
God cares about your relationship with your mom and dad. You see that? Obey your parents, not just, not just because uh, like they're your parents just disconnected from God. It says obey your parents in the Lord. And so God cares about how you relate with your mom and dad. And uh, are there exceptions to that? Like, are there some exceptions to where uh, you should, you should that's, that's like, hey, how do I obey my parents? They're asking me to cook meth. You know, and you're like, what's meth? And you can talk about that with your parents later, okay? But uh, if they're asking you to do something illegal, okay? If they're asking you to, do, to, break, to break the law, to do something uh, reckless and dangerous, there's a point in which may, maybe that's a conversation, sure. But that's an exception. And I, I, by nature, you're probably not the exception. Okay, so just kids, and I know I want to be exceptional, um, and I tend to think, oh, I'm, I'm the exception, but you're not in this space. God cares about your relationship with your parents, and he wants you to do something in particular. And uh, here's the critical thing for you. He wants you to listen to your parents because he's telling your parents to point you to him. Okay, kids, He wants your parents to point you to him. He set up this whole structure so that you would have somebody pointing you to him so that you wouldn't miss the most important thing. And sometimes they're going to fail to do that. Sometimes they're going to fail at that. And we're going to talk about repentance for them in a minute. But by and large, it doesn't change the fact that you're called to obey them even when they fail. And, and so you're called to obey them. What does obedience matter? This is for everybody. What is obedience? Obedience comes from this word. It's kind of like a combination of listen and, listen and come underneath. So you're sort of coming underneath the teaching of somebody. Okay, and a lot of times it works out because kids are smaller than parents, okay? So they're actually like, let me listen underneath you. And, uh, and so for kids, the call here would be to continue listening. Keep listening. It's so tempting. It's so easy to just to just hear this overload of all these things they're telling you to do. Keep listening. Don't grow weary in listening because they're trying to point you to life. And this is really the best and only tool that parents have in this space is to instruct you, to direct you, to tell you something and hope, hope against hope that you might listen. And here's, kids, if just one more second that I, I want to just get directly to you on this. If you're in this room and you're underneath, you're in somebody else's home in, in their authority, um, your parents want life and joy for you. You may not feel like that all the time, but I just want to advocate on their, their behalf. Your parents want the best of joy for you. When you forget that, hear this strange man Strange, bald-headed man who yells sometimes. Remember what he's saying. God cares about you listening to your parents because your parents want joy for you. So lean in with them. Sometimes that's really hard, but you know what? Jesus gets that. Jesus gets that. For your kids, if maybe they're not in here, Jesus gets how hard it is to obey in the face of a really challenging directive from a parent. He sweat blood, drops of blood on that deal. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? His father was saying, you're gonna go to the cross, you're gonna carry a cross up a hill and you're gonna die on that cross for the sins of all mankind. And Jesus said, is there, is there any, another way, Dad? He said, so there's not, no other way. 
You know, he wasn't like, oh, I guess this, I mean, it's kind of like six one way, half a dozen the other for me. I'll take that way if you say so. It, it wasn't an easy obedience. That was a weighty obedience. And so, kids, Jesus gets that. He can meet you in the challenge of obeying your parents. And what I want you to hear, kids, is that your obedience in that ends up being evangelism. When you obey your mom and dad, kids, when you obey, even if you're, like, not a, a little kid, maybe you're in high school, or, I mean, I hope our gatherings are filled with junior high and high school kids and college kids, and uh, your obedience is evangelism. You're declaring God's goodness, his glory in Jesus as you go about obeying your parents. That's, that's what I think this is what's happening in this. And so parents, just so you know, your kids, uh, it, it's like might be one of the most um, unfortunate realities is that they are listening. A lot of times they are listening and, and we act like they're not. It might be a just really unfortunate reality that your kids are listening. I, my daughter, um, we, we, when we first moved to Fort Worth, we lived at this family's home and for like six weeks, and they had a chicken coop in their backyard, and, uh, and a bobcat jumped on the chicken coop while we were staying there, and my wife saw it, captured it, like I got a picture of it, it was kind of like an awesome Nat Geo moment, like in Fort Worth. And uh, we're like, oh, man, there's a bobcat there. And Lucy, she was, she was really young. She wasn't really talking very much. She, uh, we didn't think she was picking up very much. And um, eight months later, we were, I was going to pick up a bike from that family's home. And we got in the car, Lucy and I. And I said, oh, we're going to so-and-so's house. And out of nowhere, you know what she says? Bobcat. I was like, oh, man. She's been listening this whole time. She, she had never even said the word bobcat before that. It was amazing and scary. And so parents, the reality is, is your kids are listening. They're listening to you. And here's, here's a rule or a principle that uh, somebody passed along to me that I think is actually helpful in this space because it's really discouraging because you feel like your kids aren't listening. Um, it's, it's a principle of the sower. And so you reap what you sow, you reap it later than you sowed it, and you reap more of it than you sowed. In your kids' lives, when they're coming underneath and listening, even if it doesn't seem like they're listening, even if it doesn't, it, it won't immediately, when you sow something, when you plant uh, some kind of crop, it doesn't immediately show up. It shows up later than you, sh- later than you sowed it and more of it than you sowed. And so just beware, they're listening. And now we're going to shift. That is kind of like a segue from kids now into uh, parents. So look at Ephesians 6, 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And now, now here's what's interesting. Mothers are not, like, not in this text. They're not, they're not missing from this text. If you saw it, he says, Honor your father and mother. Okay, that, that's, and that directive, that commandment didn't come just in like first century Israel. That came at Mount Sinai from a fire cloud where God was saying, moms and dads matter. Okay, so moms, you're in this text, uh, but he's speaking to fathers. Uh, kids are called to honor their moms and dads. Uh, both represent authority, but Paul speaks directly to dads here. And I think it's interesting that I, I doubt anyone is frustrated here with the over-involvement of fathers and families in our culture. There they go again. 
Dads just taking so much responsibility for their kids, caring about them, doing everything they can to see them raised up, invested in. <sighs> How dare them? Nobody's, nobody's saying that. You know why nobody's saying that? 82% of single-parent homes, they're not missing moms. 82% is the number I could find of single-parent homes. You know who they're missing? Fathers. I also think that dads frustrate their kids more um, than moms. Now, that's not always true, and that might not be your story. I totally get it. But dad jokes exist. Mom jokes don't exist. So I don't know. I'm just kind of like trying to think. Dad jokes are like, oh, it's a dad joke, or dad cargo pants, or if you, know, if that's, if you wear cargo pants, that's cool. You're like embracing that. And uh, there's dad bod. Not, you know, like that's, it's all like there's a real frustrating thing that dads are doing to their kids somehow. So I, I don't know why exactly Paul does this except for fathers I know are the ones who at the end of the day God is holding responsible for the direction that their family is growing. And we talked about that last week. Headship doesn't invalidate or decrease the value of women, not even like a little bit. And so he is speaking to fathers here. And if you're in a home without a father, fatherlessness is part of your story or it's part of your home right now, that is not beyond redemption. That doesn't set you up for a permanent failure. Don't fear that. But for homes where there are dads, here's what he tells you. Don't provoke your children to anger. He tells you something that, what does spirit-filled parenting not look like? What does it not look like uh, to, to be a spirit-filled parent. Don't provoke. Don't provoke your children to anger. Now, I think if a lot of people read this and they're like, I think Paul, I think he maybe got that a little out of order. Maybe he meant to slip that in underneath the children section. Like, children, don't provoke your parents to anger. And uh, I, think, I think you're like, maybe he just, it's like a slip of the pen or slip of the stylus or whatever, you know. And uh, so it's like, who's provoking who here is kind of this question that I, I think a lot of parents would be asking. They're like, I don't provoke my kids, they provoke me. And uh, I don't doubt that they're provoking you. My two-and-a-half-year-old, early, like a couple weeks ago, I was sitting on the ground in her bedroom, try, you know, being involved in bedtime and trying to, like, I'd try to get her to let me read stories, and she doesn't like my story reading voice or something. But I was sitting there, and she just looked at me, and, uh, like, she acted like she was doing something else, and then she just walked by and just sort of, like, smacked me in the face. <laughs> and I was like, and she kept on walking like it didn't even happen. She just kind of was like, what are you going to do? And I, was, I, I can't even be mad. I'm just impressed because you would be willing to take on somebody that is literally like me taking on a 1,300-pound person. Okay? That is the, it's like a horse. It's me versus a horse, and she's like, I got this. You know, I like, I'll, I'll see what kind of button I can push here. And, uh, and it's not just me that is getting their buttons pushed by their kids. I, I was trying to research parents making their kids angry, parents provoking their kids, and it took me forever to get past all the literature on anger management for parents. Like, it was like, are your kids making you angry? Here's a class you can take. Here's a book you can read. It was like, all of the articles were just like, parents are mad at their kids. I'm like, no, no, no. Parents are making their kids mad. Uh, the key to all of this is like, are your kids provoking you? Yes, like behind the curtain, they are. Are you provoking them? Yes, but only one person in the equation is an adult. 
one person's the adult. And Paul is saying when we are parenting under the influence of the Spirit, that we don't provoke our kids to anger. That, that word, that provocation, that's infuriating them, frustrating them, uh, making them uh, discouraged and despairing. And so I think there's two ways you can go about provoking your kids. Uh, a lot of this, I'm just trying to lean on research or lean on, honestly, good teaching that uh, doesn't have kids that are just two and a half years old, but have kids that are beyond that, okay, because I'm a young parent. But here's, here's the best I've seen on that is that you can, you can provoke them by being either overbearing or underbearing, overbearing or absent, okay? So these are two spaces that we provoke our kids. You use your authority, your strength, your intelligence, not to build them up, but to tear them down. And if you had a parent who did that, right now in your mind, there's likely echoing an action or a word or something in which you actually felt that. I know that feeling. So it's, it's using your authority to tear them down, but it's also using your authority, your strength, or your intelligence to keep them permanently under your care. So uh, it, it's this sense that you, uh, you're not helping them grow to the point of freedom and autonomy that God actually intends for kids at their given life stage. You're not teaching them to be problem solvers. You're just solving all their problems, and I'm, I'm actually really guilty of this. Okay, it's keeping them from growing into the adult that God wants them to be by being overbearing. There's some really interesting research on uh, the dangers of helicopter parenting, okay? And this is coming from like a guy who's like kind of a pro at that, okay? And so there's, there's this side of being overbearing and provoking your kids to anger, making them feel like they can't breathe, that there's no space for them to make mistakes, that they are being crushed by your authority, and then there's another way to provoke, and that's just by being absent, failing to be present with them. One study I heard about cited the reality that kids growing up with absent parents, you would think it would, would create something else in them, but it actually it creates anger. That's one of the things that it creates with absent parents that you find in kids with absent parents is a deep-seated anger, provoking. And... Uh, most of you are not at risk of being entirely absent of your kids, I would guess. You're here, you're trying, you're like, no, I'm, I'm doing it. You know, it's actually a little bit more like taboo to be like a disconnected parent. Uh, but but f- physical presence isn't the same thing as emotional presence. And so probably the biggest threat to your being present with your kids is digital distraction. It's uh, just a chipping away at your attention over the course of the years that they are underneath your home, underneath your roof in your home. This brief moment when they're listening, are you talking to them? Because there's these devices, man, that are literally designed to capture your attention. And so emotional presence is a reality. So how do you do that? How do you not overbear or be absent? I think, I think it's just an uh, understanding that relationships adjust over time. You go from doing things for your kids to directing things for your kids to advising your kids. And so it's this process that they grow into over time, released more and more to God's authority. And so uh, am I being a helicopter parent by dressing, dressing my eight-week-old daughter, like putting her little onesie things on? Is that helicopter parenting? <laughs> No, that's just called parenting, okay? It's not helicopter parenting. It's not like, man, dude, let her pick out her clothes. She's eight weeks old. <laughs> that would be, she, that, 
in all seriousness, she would not make it through the night, okay? Uh, she would get cold because she wouldn't know how to, she can't move. She can't roll over, okay? Now, um, what if I'm dressing her when she's a teenager? All of you just in your said, head said, that's weird, right? <laughs> Good, because that is weird, right? She is more of an adult. She's moving towards adulthood. That is just weird if I'm like either actively or just saying no. Well, I mean, some of that is like I'm going to restrict, like you can't, not wear clothes on these areas, okay? So you got to wear clothes there. Um, but she's going to put them on, okay? She's going to do that. I'm releasing her more and more uh, to God's authority. And so what you need to do is just keep perspective on your role on, uh, in a given stage. And so what do we, that's the negative side. Don't provoke them, okay? But how, how, what is the positive side of spirit-filled parenting? He says this. Um, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't provoke them. Bring them up in the discipline. So this is a positive side. This is the active thing. What does spirit-filled parenting look like? It looks like discipline and instruction. Okay? And so these words, they're, they're actually really closely, the definitions of them are really close to one another. They're very, very tied in. So it's, it's, it's not a huge difference. But I think there are two components kind of buried into this in terms of discipline and instruction for your kids. And the best words, I'm trying to like kind of give you another idea, come around it, would be correcting and counseling. Okay, correcting and counseling. There's another ideas that are coming around the, the words that Paul is using to instruct us on spirit-filled parenting. Okay, and so it's this correction and counseling or correction and care. Okay, so those are the two sides. So, so to correct your child means taking action to get their attention and change their direction. Um, and so if this is the only component of your parenting, if that's all that exists in your parenting is correction, you're just adjusting their direction all the time, you're, you're just changing uh, what they're doing, if that's the only thing that exists in your parenting, then it's likely that you're not parenting according to God's desires, but you're parenting according to your own preferences. And so beware of that. If you're just correcting your kid all the time, it's most likely that you're just correcting them, not according to God's will and desire, but your own preferences. And it's self-centered. And that's problematic in its own way, but it has a deeply negative effect on your kids when the correction does not come with care. When there's not care with correction, okay, you're actually preaching a message to your kids that salvation comes through obedience, it's a works-based salvation that you're preaching to them when you're saying that. My love for you is on the other side of obedience. If your love for your kids, your giving of love to your kids is on the other side of their obedience, my affection for you, my care for you is earned. You're preaching a false gospel to your kids. And so if you're going to bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord, then it must be a heart-level learning that you're working them towards. You want them, their hearts to be changed, not their behavior modified. That's what gospel, spirit-filled parenting is about. And so on the other side, if, you're, if your parenting is, so, so correction and then care. Care is taking time to connect with, listen to, counsel your kids, responding to them, expressing love to them. Okay, and so that's correction and care. And so if, that's, if, 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 if care, this kind of other softer side of parenting, if that's the only component of your parenting, it's not your preferences that you're being ruled by, it's your kids. And it's equally as dangerous because you're not telling them that you're God, you're telling them that they're God. And that is a scary thing if a kid really thinks about it because they know they're not a good God. They're not big enough, they're not strong enough, they're not God. 
So it's kid-centered instead of parent-centered. And it preaches a false gospel of cheap grace that obedience isn't important and that your disobedience costs nothing. If there's no correction for disobedience, no correction for ways that, pe- that kids are missing, that they're going on the wrong path, taking the wrong turn, not thinking about that in the right way, if there's no correction for that, if it's just care and love and, hey, you're awesome and I love you and it's, it, everything's good, um, then they're going to believe that grace costs nothing, that their de- obedience is inconsequential. And that's not the gospel either. The gospel walks right down the middle of this and says, that's why it's just discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not parent-centered and it's not kid-centered. It's Jesus-centered parenting. It's evangelism in your parenting. Your parenting is an act of evangelism. It is, if it's correction without care, that's a false gospel. If it's care without correction, that's a false gospel. It's not representing God's love and God's gospel to your kids in the way that you're interacting with them. You can't call them to Jesus when you are parenting them in a way that is either uh, legal or licentious. You can't call them to the gospel. And you definitely cannot preach a gospel that you're not believing for yourself. So it's the last thing I want to tell you is that um, you can't preach a gospel to your kids. You can't parent them towards Jesus if you are not walking with him. I know we want, sometimes we wish that was true. Go to your room and meet with Jesus. I'm going to be out here. Do you remember how I said that I became an evangelism, uh, an evangelist, an evangelist this week? Do you remember how I said that that happened? Somebody came to my dinner table. They sat down at my dinner table, and they shared about this thing. They leveraged all of their relational capital to move me to consider something. And, uh, and I became a believer, you know. <laughs> I became a believer, and I told everyone. It's how evangelism works. You bring people, who are, you build relational capital with them. You leverage all of it to get them to consider Jesus. And then they, when they receive him, they'll go and tell everybody else about him. It's how we got here. It's how the church is built. And um, here's a scary reality for our dinner tables is that your kids know better than anyone what you love. They know. They know what you love. They know if you love yourself above everything. They know if you love them above everything. They know if you love your job or your money or your anything. They know what you love. And they won't be fooled. You are evangelizing at your dinner table. When you're together at your dinner table, if you're together with your family, you are being an evangelist for something. The best way to bring your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is to have a heart that is submitted to his discipline and instruction for you. That's the way that you can do that, is actually being tied into the vine as one of his branches. And so this might seem irrelevant to folks who are not parents, so we're going to wrap this up. It might seem irrelevant to folks that are not parents. So if you're not a parent in here, you're like, well... That's about, you know, 35 minutes I wish I had back. Um, uh, But here's what I want you to hear if you don't have kids in here. A lot of the other people in here do. (laughs) You're like, I know, I can't avoid that reality. Uh, It haunts me. Um, Or blesses me, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But uh, here's what I want to tell you, is that those families need your help. If you're in here and you do not have kids, These families need you. 
I am actively recruiting people into this body who do not have kids because they're going to have margin and they're going to have space in their lives to help you as a parent. So they need your help. They need your help to preach the gospel to their kids, Kid City, Big Kid City, just in life at their dinner table, helping them believe that their parents love them so when their parents point them to Jesus, they'll believe their parents. These families need you to preach the gospel to their kids, to embody the gospel to their kids. A lot of you, when you come in and out of my home or in Kid City or in these places, you are embodying the gospel to my daughters. And the odds are is that they're going to hear the gospel not from me but from you. We need you if you don't have kids. And then we need you to preach the gospel to parents. These people are embarking on one of the scariest, hardest, most life-changing things ever. And you think it's going to get easier, and then you, you get one step down the road, and it's harder in a different way and harder in a different way. These parents need you to preach the gospel to them, to encourage them, okay? Because they're doing something that's very overwhelming. And so this might be overwhelming to you parents to try to think of how can I bring up my child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? How can I not provoke them? How can I not make them hate me? How can I not see them run their lives into the ground? How can I see them love Jesus? I want for, more than anything for this person who came for me to live forever with me around the throne of Jesus. How can I, how can I see that happen? Especially when I'm so bad at this. I fail in so many ways. How can I do that? Here's my word to you. Is salvation is from the Lord. It's not from you. You can't save your kids. But you also can't damn them. No amount of good parenting will save a kid, and no amount of bad parenting will damn them. To bring them up in the Lord, you need the Lord. Salvation is from him. And so don't buy into overconfidence like, hey, I got this. We're crushing it. We made it look easy last five minutes. But don't buy into hopelessness. That Jesus I was talking about at the beginning of this message, he has come. He lived and he died and he rose again and he never died again. He's alive. God has intervened and he can do that in your child's life. There's not hopelessness for you. You will either be helping or hindering your child in knowing the Lord and bringing him or her up in the Lord. But when you fail at helping, when you are a hindrance to that, there is a really beautiful path away from it. And I just, this last thing I'll tell you is that um, when you fail, when you fail as a parent, not if, when, model repentance for them. If you could do one thing, just model repentance for them. You want to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You want to help them know Jesus. Show them what it looks like when you fail and you run to Jesus. Show them. Tell them. Repent in front of them. Don't hide that from them. That's what your kids need to see. Because you are a son before you are a dad. You are a daughter before you are a mother. And if you want to judge how, this is what J.I. Packer says, we'll put this quote up. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. 
You are a son before you are a father. You are a daughter before you are a mother. Repent and lean into Jesus when you fail. Don't worship the God of self in your home. Don't worship the God of child in your home. Worship the living, risen king in your home. The gospel is the good news that you are in the family of God by grace. Trust in that good news and preach that good news. Be evangelists in your family. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there, um, there are a lot of moms and dads in here who really need your help. They may not think they need your help and they need, it, they need it really badly or they know they need your help and they need it really badly. And so I just pray that your Holy Spirit would meet them in their parenting, that their parenting, that their family relationships, those would actually be um, these, these worship-filled, worship-fueling relationships. Would you make the, the children of our parents evangelists to the parents as they obey them? Would you make parents evangelists to kids as they discipline and instruct them in Jesus. Would you comfort those in this body who long to have kids but have not been able to? Would you use those in this body who don't have kids to be evangelists to my kids, to the other kids in this body? Would you raise up leaders in this body who will take the gospel into this next generation to help lay a foundation of joyful worship in this next generation? Would you do that amongst us? And most of all, would you help us just to have a glimpse of you, Jesus? Everything you said was the right thing. Everything you've done is the right thing. You never missed. You never failed. You never failed to obey your heavenly dad. Would you help us to know your love and your grace and to walk in it recklessly, relentlessly, boldly this week? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.